Section 51 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 45. Louis the Fourteenth, His Wars and His Reverses, 1697-1713. Part 1. France was breathing again after nine years of a desperate war, but she was breathing uneasily, and as it were in expectation of fresh efforts. Everywhere the memorials of the superintendents repeated the same complaints. Quote, war, the mortality of 1693, the constant quarterings and movements of soldiery, military service, the heavy dues and the withdrawal of the Huguenots have ruined the country. Quote, the people, said the superintendent of Rouen, are reduced to a state of want which moves compassion. Out of seven hundred and fifty thousand souls of which the public is composed, if this number remain, it may be taken for certain that there are not fifty thousand who have bread to eat when they want it, and anything to lie upon but straw. Agriculture suffered for lack of money and hands. Commerce was ruined. The manufactures established by Colbert no longer existed. The population had diminished more than a quarter since the palmy days of the king's reign. Pontchartrain, secretary of finance, was reduced to all sorts of expedients for raising money. He was anxious to rid himself of this heavy burden, and became chancellor in 1699. The king took for his substitute Chamillard, already controller of finance, honest and hard-working, incapable and docile. Louis the Fourteenth counted upon the inexhaustible resources of France, and closed his ears to the grievances of the financiers. Quote, what is not spoken of is supposed to be put an end to, said Madame de Maintenon. The camp at Compiègne, in 1698, surpassed in splendor all that had till then been seen. The enemies of Louis XIV in Europe called him, quote, the King of Reviews, end quote. Meanwhile, the King of Spain, Charles II, dying as he was, was regularly besieged at Madrid by the Queen, his second wife, Marianne of Neuburg, sister of the Empress, as well as by his minister, Cardinal Porto Carrero. The competitors for the succession were numerous. The King of France and the Emperor claimed their rights in the name of their mothers and wives, daughters of Philip III and Philip IV. The Elector of Bavaria put up the claims of his son by right of his mother, Marie Antoinette of Austria, daughter of the Emperor. For a short time Charles II had adopted this young prince. The child died suddenly at Madrid in 1699. For a long time past, King Louis the Fourteenth had been secretly negotiating for the partition of the King of Spain's dominions, not with the Emperor who still hoped to obtain from Charles the Second a will in favour of his second son, the Archduke Charles, but with England and Holland, deeply interested as they were in maintaining the equilibrium between the two kingly houses which divided Europe. William the Third considered himself certain to obtain the acceptance by the Emperor of the conditions subscribed by his allies. On the 13th and 15th of May, 1700, after long hesitation and a stubborn resistance on the part of the city of Amsterdam, the Treaty of Partition was signed in London and at The Hague. Quote, king William is honourable in all this business, said a letter to the king from his ambassador, Count de Talard. His conduct is sincere. He is proud. None can be more so than he. But he has a modest manner, though none can be more jealous in all that concerns his rank. End quote. The Treaty of Partition secured to the Dauphin all the possessions of Spain in Italy, save Milaness, which was to indemnify the Duke of Lorraine, whose duchy passed to France. Spain, the Indies, and the Low Countries were to belong to Archduke Charles. Great was the wrath at Vienna when it was known that the treaty was signed. Quote, 
happily said the minister von kaunitz to the marquis of villars ambassador of france there is one on high who will work for us in these partitions Quote, that one replied m de villars will approve of their justice Quote, it is something new however for the king of england and for holland to partition the monarchy of spain continued the count Quote, allow me replied m de villars to excuse them in your eyes those two powers have quite recently come out of a war which cost them a great deal and the emperor nothing for in fact you have been at no expense but against the turks you had some troops in italy and in the empire two regiments only of hussars which were not on its pay-list england and holland alone bore all the burden william the third was still negotiating with the emperor and the german princes to make them accept the treaty of partition when it all at once became known in europe that charles the second had breathed his last at madrid on the first of november seventeen hundred and that by a will dated october two he disposed of the spanish monarchy in favour of the duke of anjou grandson of louis the fourteenth this will was the work of the council of spain at the head of which sat cardinal porto Carrero. Quote, the national party says m mignet in his introduction au document relatif de la succession d'espagne detested the austrians because they had been so long in spain it liked the french because they were no longer there the former had been there time enough to weary by their dominion whilst the latter were served by the mere fact of their removal single-handed louis the fourteenth appeared powerful enough to maintain the integrity of the spanish monarchy before the face and in the teeth of all the competitors Quote, the king of spain was beginning to see the things of this world by the light alone of that awful torch which is lighted to lighten the dying memoire de saint simon page sixteen wavering irresolute distracted within himself he asked the advice of pope innocent the twelfth who was favourable to france the hopes of louis the fourteenth had not soared so high on the ninth of november seventeen hundred he heard at one and the same time of charles the second's death and the contents of his will it was a solemn situation. The acceptance by France of the King of Spain's will meant war. The refusal did not make peace certain. In default of a French prince, the crown was to go to Archduke Charles. Neither Spain nor Austria would hear of dismemberment. Could they be forced to accept the treaty of partition which they had hitherto rejected angrily? The King's council was divided. Louis the Fourteenth listened in silence to the arguments of the Dauphin and of the ministers. For a moment the resolution was taken of holding by the treaty of partition next day the king again assembled his council without as yet making known his decision on tuesday november sixteenth the whole court thronged into the galleries of versailles it was known that several couriers had arrived from madrid the king sent for the spanish ambassador into his closet Quote, the duke of anjou had repaired thither by the back way says the duke of st simon in his memoir the king introducing him to him told him he might salute him as his king the instant afterwards the king contrary to all custom had the folding-doors thrown open and ordered everybody who was there and there was a crowd to come in then casting his eyes majestically over the numerous company quote, gentlemen he said introducing the duke of anjou here is the king of spain his birth called him to that crown the last king gave it him by his will the grandees desired him and have demanded him of me urgently it is the will of heaven and i have yielded with pleasure End quote and turning to his grandson quote, be a good spaniard he said that is from the moment your first duty but remember that you are french-born in order to keep up the union between the two nations that is the way to render them happy and to preserve the peace of europe three weeks later the young king was on the road to spain quote, there are no longer any pyrenees said louis the fourteenth as he embraced his grandson 
the rights of Philip V to the crown of France had been carefully reserved by a formal act of the king's. Great were the surprise and wrath in Europe. William III felt himself personally affronted. Quote, I have no doubt, he wrote to Heinsius, that this unheard-of proceeding on the part of France has caused you as much surprise as it has me. I never had much confidence in engagements contracted with France, but I confess I never could have supposed that that court would have gone so far as to break, in the face of Europe, so solemn a treaty before it had even received the finishing stroke. Granted that we have been dupes, but when beforehand you are resolved to hold your word of no account, it is not very difficult to overreach your mail. I shall be blamed perhaps for having relied upon France, I who ought to have known by the experience of the past that no treaty has ever bound her. Would to God I might be quit for the blame, but I have only too many grounds for fearing that the fatal consequences of it will make themselves felt shortly. I groan in the very depths of my spirit to see that in this country the majority rejoice to find the will preferred by France to the maintenance of the Treaty of Partition, and that too on the ground that the will is more advantageous for England and Europe. This opinion is founded partly on the youth of the Duke of Anjou. He is a child, they say, he will be brought up in Spain, he will be indoctrinated with the principles of that monarchy, and he will be governed by the Council of Spain. But these are surmises which it is impossible for me to entertain, and I fear that we shall before long find out how erroneous they are. Would it not seem as if this profound indifference with which, in this country, they look upon everything that takes place outside of this island, were a punishment from heaven? Meanwhile are not our causes for apprehension, and our interests the same as those of the peoples of the continent? William III was a more far-sighted politician than his subjects either in England or Holland. The States-General took the same view as the English. Quote, Public funds and shares have undergone a rise at Amsterdam, wrote Heinsius to the King of England, and although this rests on nothing solid, your Majesty is aware how much influence such a fact has. End quote. Louis XIV had lost no time in explaining to the powers the grounds of his acceptance. Quote, the King of Spain's will, he said in his manifesto, establishes the peace of Europe on solid bases. Quote, Talard did not utter a single word on handing me his sovereign's letter, the contents of which are the same as of that which the states have received, wrote William to Heinsius. I said to him that perhaps I had testified too eager a desire for the preservation of peace, but that nevertheless my inclination in that respect had not changed. Whereupon he replied, The king my master, by accepting the will, considers that he gives a similar proof of his desire to maintain peace. Thereupon he made me a bow and withdrew. End quote. William of Orange had not deceived himself in thinking that Louis the Fourteenth would govern Spain in his grandson's name. Nowhere are the old king's experience and judgment more strikingly displayed than in his letters to Philip V. Quote, I very much wish, he wrote to him, that you were as sure of your own subjects as you ought to be of mine in the posts in which they may be employed. But do not be astounded at the disorder you find amongst your troops, and at the little confidence you are able to place in them. It needs a long reign and great pains to restore order, and secure the fidelity of different peoples accustomed to obey a house hostile to yours. If you thought it would be very easy and very pleasant to be a king, you were very much mistaken." A sad confession for that powerful monarch, who in his youth found, quote, the vocation of king beautiful, noble, and delightful. Quote, the eighteenth century opened with a fullness of glory and unheard of prosperity. End quote. But Louis the fourteenth did not suffer himself to be lulled to sleep by the apparent indifference with which Europe, the empire excepted, received the elevation of Philip V to the throne of Spain. On the 6th of February, 1701, the seven barrier towns of the Spanish Low Countries, which were occupied by Dutch garrisons in virtue of the Peace of Ryswick, opened their gates to the French on an order from the King of Spain. Quote, 
the instructions which the elector of bavaria governor of the low countries had given to the various governors of the places were so well executed says m de vaux in his account of the campaign in flanders that we entered without any hindrance some of the officers of the dutch troops grumbled and would have complained but the french general officers who had led the troops pacified them declaring that they did not come as enemies and that all they wanted was to live in good understanding with them the twenty-two dutch battalions took the road back before long to their own country and became the nucleus of the army which william of orange was quietly getting ready in holland as well as in england his peoples were beginning to open their eyes the states-general deprived of the barrier towns had opened the dikes the meadows were flooded on the seventh of september seventeen o one england and holland signed for the second time with the emperor a grand alliance engaging not to lay down arms until they had reduced the possessions of king philip v to spain and the indies restored the barrier of holland and secured an indemnity to austria and the definitive severance of the two crowns of france and spain in the month of june the austrian army had entered italy under the orders of prince eugene of savoy carignano son of the count of soissons and olympia mancini conqueror of the turks and revolted hungarians and passionately hostile to louis the fourteenth who in his youth had refused to employ him he had already crossed the adige and the mincio driving the french back behind the olio marshal catina a man of prudence and far-sightedness but discouraged by the bad condition of his troops coldly looked upon at court and disquieted by the aspect of things in italy was acting supinely the king sent marshal villeroy to supersede him catina as modest as he was warmly devoted to the glory of his country finished the campaign as a simple volunteer the king of france and the emperor were looking up allies the princes of the north were absorbed by the war which was being waged against his neighbours of russia and poland by the young king of sweden charles the twelfth a hero of eighteen as irresistible as gustavus adolphus in his impetuous bravery without possessing the rare qualities of authority and judgment which had distinguished the line of the north he joined the grand alliance as did denmark and poland whose new king the elector of saxony had been supported by the emperor in his candidature and in his abjuration of protestantism the elector of brandenburg recently recognized as king of prussia under the name of frederick i and the new elector of hanover were eager to serve leopold who had aided them in their elevation in germany only maximilian elector of bavaria governor of the low countries and his brother the elector of cologne embraced the side of france the duke of savoy generalissimo of the king's forces in italy had taken the command of the army quote, but in that country wrote the count of tesse there is no reliance to be placed on places or troops or officers or people i have had another interview with this incomprehensible prince who received me with every manifestation of kindness of outward sincerity and if he were capable of it i would say of friendship for him of whom his majesty made use but lately in the work of peace in italy the king is master of my person of my dominions he said to me he has only to give his commands but i suppose that he still desires my welfare and my aggrandizement as for your aggrandizement monseigneur said i in truth i do not see much material for it just at present as for your welfare we must be allowed to see your intentions a little more clearly first and take the liberty of repeating to you that my prescience does not extend so far I do him the justice to believe that he really feels the greater part of all that he expresses for your majesty, but that horrid habit of indecision and putting off till to-morrow what he might do to-day is not eradicated and never will be." The Duke of Savoy was not so undecided as M. de Tesse supposed. He managed to turn to good account the mystery which hung habitually over all his resolutions. 
a year had not rolled by, and he was openly engaged in the Grand Alliance, pursuing against France the cause of that aggrandizement which he had but lately hoped to obtain from her, and by which, by the Treaty of Utrecht, was worth the title of king to him. Pending the time to declare himself, he had married his second daughter, Princess Marie-Louise Gabrielle, to the young king of Spain, Philip V. Quote, Never had the tranquillity of Europe been so unstable as it was at the commencement of 1702, says the correspondence of Chamillard, published by General Pellet. It was but a phantom of peace that was enjoyed, and it was clear, from whatever side matters were regarded, that we were on the eve of a war which could not but be of long duration, unless by some unforeseen accident the houses of Bourbon and Austria should come to an arrangement which would allow them to set themselves in accord touching the Spanish succession. But there was no appearance of conciliation." End, End of section 51